This theme, this trimester is Vision 2020. And uh, the series that we're launching today is called Foresight is 2020, Actualize a Vision for Your Life. So I'm going to spend 40 minutes or so kind of introducing this concept to you. And uh, I hope that it's meaningful. And we're going to close our time together, at least for everyone who wants to participate, by building together the vision wall behind me. And we'll talk about that at the end. So it's nearly impossible to overstate the importance of foresight. Perhaps you remember that scene from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland when Alice asked the cat for directions. She says, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? Which way should I go? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. And the cat responded, then it doesn't matter which way you go. Now let me make an obvious point. If you don't know where you're going, it's really difficult to get there. Or today I'll say it like this, if you can't see where you're going, it's very difficult to get there. A 2009 study confirmed that people trying to find their way through a forest devoid of landmarks or without the sun as a beacon tend to walk around in circles. In fact, people walked around in circles as tight as 66 feet. It would be like putting a blindfold on someone and asking them to walk across a football field the short way, not the long way. And they never ever get to the other side. They just keep walking around in circles. And researchers concluded that in the absence of clear markers of distance and direction, we make a continuous stream of micro adjustments to what we think is straight. Our constantly changing sense of what is straight keeps us walking in a loop. We circle and circle. Now you can overcome this tendency. If you have a distinct landmark to work towards, or if you're fortunate enough perhaps to have a compass or a GPS. But the worst part the research has said about these people walking in circles is because even when presented evidence that they were walking in circles, they still didn't believe it. They just had no sense of orientation, no sense of direction in their life. Well, I've got great news for you today. You do not have to spend your life walking in circles because you can have foresight. Now, if you want to follow along in your life notes, you'll find them in a seat back pocket close to you. And we have a lot of folks around here who love to take notes and fill in the blanks. And if you enjoy doing that or just, you know, doodling, you can find the life notes somewhere. But don't doodle in circles today. Because anyway, foresight, my definition of foresight for the purpose of this series is foresight is insight about the future. 
Foresight is insight about the future. I submit that it is possible to spiritually see your future before it can be seen physically. Listen to this passage where Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. He says, I'm asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight. Paul said, I'm praying that God will give you spiritual wisdom. Wisdom has to do with how things work. That God will give you spiritual wisdom and insight. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the wonderful future he has promised to those he has called. God, God would like to give you spiritual wisdom. He'd like to give you insight. And this concerns at least in part a sense of the wonderful future that God has planned for us. Now, on one hand, of course, it's important that I state this. On one hand, we don't know what tomorrow holds. But on the other hand, we can nevertheless get insight into God's plan for our lives and we can pray and plan and act accordingly. Here's a passage that is kind of an important framing device for this subject. Uh, I, I just mention it quickly. It's where James, the half-brother of Jesus and bishop of Jerusalem, wrote to the church in general and said, now listen you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into this city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, a lot of people just, you know, they just quote, part of passages and forget the whole context. And they think the emphasis here is, we don't know what's gonna to happen tomorrow. Well, this is certainly true, but what he's saying is that in light of that, you should figure out what God's will is for you, and once you figure that out, you can have a sense of what you should do tomorrow. Because when we have a sense of what God's plans for us are, then we're able to decide where to go and how long to stay there and carry on business. And the passage lets us know, make money even, if that's what we're supposed to do, and live and do this or that. It's not that we say we don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring, so we're just gonna sit around and do nothing. It's we don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring Totally, but we can have a sense of what God's will is for our lives, and that sense should direct us to get busy about living the life that God has planned for us. Now again, foresight is insight about our future. We often say, of course, that hindsight is 2020. But in this series, we're gonna say that foresight is 2020. What if you could see your future? What difference would that make in how you live your life? Now, there are disciplines common uh, to all human beings, whether believers or filled with God's spirit or not, that can help us develop foresight. One such discipline is strategic thinking. Strategic thinking, according to T. Irene Sanders in her book, Strategic Thinking in the New Science, strategic thinking has to do with developing insight about the present and foresight about the future. 
See, a good strategic thinking process, for instance, studies the environment, educates and tests assumptions, tries to anticipate the future, begins to articulate imagination, and so on. That's an example of a discipline that any human being can get better at, and, and we can learn to practice strategic thinking. But, but and, and that's all good, it's wonderful in fact, but, the foresight that I'm proposing today precedes disciplines like strategic thinking. Because I'm gonna to propose to you today that we can travel in the mind of God in order to understand what is in his mind about our futures. Now here's the verse that inspires me the most about this, and this will be the focus verse for today. It's, a, it's something that I've taught about many, many times, though never in the way I'm gonna teach about it today. Um, I wrote about it at some length in Live 10, which is why Christian suggested, if you're new to us and haven't read that, you can get a lot of this in, in Live 10. But uh, here's the passage. It's 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10, where Paul says, as it is written, what no eye has seen, now we're talking about foresight, and it, we're gonna talk about foresight in this regard, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Again, this is a verse that's often quoted out of context. People will often quote it, and it's nice to do, perhaps in a funeral service about the glories of heaven. It's not what Paul's writing about here. It's nice, it's part of the future. It's not what he's writing about here. He's saying there are things that God has prepared for you that are of such magnitude that human eyes can't see it, human ears can't hear it, the human mind can't conceive it. But he says, that doesn't mean though you can't know it because God will reveal it to us by his spirit because the spirit searches the deep things of God. This is the foresight that should precede and inform disciplines like strategic thinking, from which should flow strategic planning, from which must flow actions to actualize God's vision for our life. Spiritual foresight is foundational. It's having a sense of what God made our lives to be about. And that's when, that doesn't mean that's the end of the process, we need then to engage our will and, and act in ways that cooperate with God's plan for us. So spiritual foresight is foundational. And from that comes uh, strategic thinking. And from that comes uh, strategic planning. And from that comes vision actualization. That's not the sum total of the process, but I'm trying to give you a sense of how important it is to start with what's in God's mind for you and then other processes flow from it. Now. I wanna locate today's discussion of foresight and particularly the passage we just read from 1 Corinthians 2 within the larger context of the first century church in Corinth and Paul's first existing letter to the Christians in Corinth. So over the next few weeks, by God's grace, we're gonna focus on 
Paul's letters to the Corinthians that we have in the New Testament, especially 1 Corinthians, and um, we're going to talk about this idea of foresight in the larger context of what Paul was writing to this church. Um, we're going to talk about it on weekends. I think that it's part of the uh, scripture reading plan over the next few weeks and so on. So I, I want you if, you, if you would please, to kind of take what I've just said in an, in an introductory way about foresight, kind of set it over here just for a minute. We're going to come back to it, but we're going to come back to it with a scriptural understanding that I think is important for us. Okay? Everybody doing okay? How about the weather today? It's crazy, right? Say, anyway, I can't imagine anybody would find an excuse not to show up this morning, but there obviously are some of you who have. But anyway, I still love you. I'm looking at the online audience. Anyway, Corinth was a, was a so here's my introduction to Corinth and Corinthians. Corinth was a proud Roman colony in the south of Greece. It was a large city for that time of about 80,000 people with about 20,000 people living in the surrounding area. It was cosmopolitan, prosperous, religiously pluralistic. Uh, Sharon and I had the, uh, had the great privilege to be in Corinth this past uh, November, and you'll see behind me a picture of us standing in front of the remnants of the Temple of Apollo. Uh, it's pretty amazing. You've heard of Corinthian columns? Those are Corinthian columns. And there's another picture uh, of us standing at the base of the immense Acro-Corinth, which overlooks the city and on which the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, stood. If you follow me on social media, I posted from Greece that Sharon and I were standing in front of the temple of Aphrodite, and I was standing there with my goddess of love. But anyway, it's a, more fun if she was sitting here to be embarrassed. Well, Paul arrived in Corinth around 15. 51 AD, and he began preaching the good news about Jesus, first in the Jewish synagogue and then throughout the city, and to great effect, over 18 months, longer than Paul stayed most any place else, a thriving church grew up which included a wide diversity of people, some of who we'll talk about, I think, in coming weeks. The president of the uh, Jewish synagogue, the treasurer of the city, Erastus, I saw his grave in Corinth. Successful business people, slaves. It was a very diverse church that grew up in Corinth. And over the next few years, as best we can tell, Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Two of them are in our New Testament. What we call 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that he wrote. Uh, the purpose of 1 Corinthians was to address a number of specific issues that existed in the church. The church in Corinth, Paul says in his opening statement to them, was full of the power of the Holy Spirit, it was thriving and growing, but it had issues, as, by the way, do all churches. The specific issues in Corinth were generally rooted in factionalism. Most of their issues, according to Paul, came out of the fact that there was more than one vision in that church. And you know what you call more than one vision? You call it division. 
And, and from that, there were all kinds of problems that were happening in the church. And Paul wrote to the church to uh, get them to gather around a common vision and challenge them to see their, their issues through Jesus and the cross. He tries to get them to focus on some of the pettiness they were involved in and to get them to think about the bigger picture. And he tries to focus them on Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross. I want to read a section at the opening of this letter that puts 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10 in proper uh, context. Now, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind conceived, God has prepared these things and God will reveal them to us by his spirit. I want to give you the broader context for this. Now it's going to take a minute. Okay, I'm gonna do a little kind of expository light teaching for seven or eight minutes here, and, and you, you can either go to sleep uh, for a minute or, or, or dig in for a minute so that you can get this bigger picture, okay? I'm always determined, by the way, not just to say inspirational things, but to try. I'm a teacher, right? I wanna teach some things that will help you in significant ways. All right, so, uh, most commentators say that the first section of Corinthians begins in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Now remember, the, the chapters and verses have been given to us by the translators. Paul didn't write chapters and verses, he just wrote a letter. But for the purpose of our discussion, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 is an introductory, hi everybody, from Paul. And then he really gets into the body of the letter and it goes, the first sections from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, through the end of chapter three. It's kind of a lengthy reading. I'll read a few of the verses and I'll talk through a few. I'm gonna talk as quickly as I can and then we're gonna get back to foresight, all right? Here he comes, 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now this is the point, this is, this sets the context for what he's gonna write in the rest of 1 Corinthians. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, I hear that you're quarreling, and I'm asking you to be perfectly united in mind and thought. There's only gonna be one vision, he says. And I'm asking everybody to get on board so that we can agree together, so that we don't have these kind of petty issues that we're having. And then from 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 17, he describes the way, I encourage you to read it later, he describes the specific way that people were divided and how that they were creating power centers around particular leaders. And then from, from verse 18 through 31, the end of chapter one, he teaches that our power is found in the cross of Jesus, not any person or faction, and that even though the cross seems foolish to observant Jews and educated Greeks, God's apparent Foolishness is wiser than the greatest wisdom in the world. And then we head into chapter two. When I came to you, 1 Corinthians 2, 1, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Now Paul's gonna do something really witty here. He's gonna be ironic, even sarcastic. He's gonna say that he didn't come to them with human eloquence and he's gonna say it very eloquently. 
Sometimes I have people come up and say, you know, you don't really need to study that much and you don't need to get an education around the Bible because all you need to do is just talk about the cross and you don't need to worry about. Well, Paul was incredibly learned, very well educated, and he's making, he's, he's, he's making a little joke here. He's saying, he's saying I'm, I don't want your uh, sense of things to be based on human eloquence because the finest human eloquence is, is less wise than the least eloquence that comes from God. But again, he, say, he uses clever rhetoric to say that clever rhetoric isn't really the point, okay? I mean, there's a reason why 2,000 years later we're reading what he wrote, and part of it is he was really a great writer, all right? Okay. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. And the reason he says that is because when he showed up in AD 51, he was just a few weeks away from receiving a terrible beating in Philippi. He was alone and lonely. Timothy, his traveling companion, had traveled to Thessalonica to check on the church there. Paul just had a big confrontation in Athens with, uh, uh, on Mars Hill. Uh, there's, listen, if I had two hours, I could really teach through this passage. It, well, okay, I'm not gonna ask you if you want me to do that. But, but, but the, he, he said, when I came to you, I wasn't in great shape, but nonetheless, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, he says with great wisdom and, and, and with great persuasion, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. See, wisdom has to do with the way things work, and Paul is saying uh, to people who were used to, to sophistry, to to people who said a lot of eloquent words but didn't have a lot of substance, which was the context of Greece and Corinth at that time, he was saying, listen, you, your wisdom does not come from someone saying a lot of words in the right way. Wisdom comes by getting people to focus on the power that comes through the cross of Jesus. And I want you to know that the least wisdom of God is greater than the greatest wisdom of all these fancy talkers you Greeks are listening to all the time. And then we get into our text, 1 Corinthians 2, 6, we're continuing. We do, however, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. If you read the first few verses, it sounds like he's saying he didn't speak a message of wisdom. But what he's gonna say is, I'm speaking a message not based on human wisdom, but based on God's wisdom. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who were coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden Notice, past tense, has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what, now here we are back to our passage. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. He's saying this, I'm coming to you with a better wisdom than human wisdom. I'm coming to you with God's wisdom. We have insight as to how God caused things to work. And this includes what used to be mysterious, but isn't a mystery anymore. 
What it was accomplished through the cross of Jesus is what used to be hidden is now not hidden. And this has to do with the glory God destined for you before the world began. You used to not be able to know it, but now those of us who are in relationship with God the Father, indwelt by the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus, can now know things that we didn't used to be able to know because the Spirit of God is going to search the mind of God and tell us about the things that are so incredible that God has planned for us that human eyes can't see it, human ears can't hear it, and the human mind can't conceive it. But he says, we can know it. And then he goes on in the next section to talk about, and we'll come back to this later if I have time, and I'm already running out of time. And we'll look at how he says it's the Holy Spirit at work in our lives that reveals to us the mind of God. And then he closes chapter 2 by asking a rhetorical question. For who has known, 1 Corinthians 2.16, the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. When I was a kid, so much was taken out of context. I don't know what the problem was. Folks should have studied more or something. Uh, God bless them. But... People would say, who can know? Who could possibly know the mind of God? And everybody would say, nobody. No, it's exactly the opposite of what it says. He says, but who? Who can know what's on God's mind? And then he turns around and says, we have the mind of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we can know, of course, everything God knows. But we can have some sense of what God has planned for us, the glory he destined for us before the world began through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can have insight into God's mind. And then he returns to the theme of unity again. Because that's all the rest of this was to support the bigger issue about their unity as a church. So he goes, that's the end of, I just read to you the last verse in chapter 2. He then goes into what we know of as 1 Corinthians 3.1. And he says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's, you know, you read this passage about what no eye has seen, God's prepared, and you get all excited, right? And then Paul says, stop! I can't even talk to you about it because you are so immature. Why are we immature, Paul? Because there's division among you. Because you're not relating to each other properly. Because you're focused on petty little hurts and offenses and what leader I want to follow. And, and he said, so, so even though God has incredible plans for you, I can't talk to you about it because you're worldly. Why are we worldly, Paul? Because your relationships with one another aren't right. So here's the text. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Notice, when you want to talk about whether somebody's mature or immature, it's not how long they've been in the church, how much scripture they know, how much money they give, how old they are. It has to do with how we relate to one another. When he talks about being worldly here versus spiritual, it's not how much somebody prays, how much somebody fasts, how much somebody gives, what position they hold in the church. They, they are considered to be, to, to, to be uh, immature or worldly on the basis of how they're relating to one another. It's, it's so spiritual is not somebody who manifests spiritual gifts. It, it gets into that later in 1 Corinthians. 
if they're doing it in a way that brings disorder to the church, then they're worldly. They're immature. It's about how they relate to one another. Okay, I am sidetracked here. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you. I've got great news. Wait, I can't tell it to you. Because you're not ready, verse two. You're still worldly. Why? For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? And then later in the chapter, he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone in your midst, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So he's trying to say here, yes, you as an individual are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He says that later in 1 Corinthians. But you need to understand that you're not alone because you are built together with all the other people in the church and together you make up the temple. And if any one individual does anything to harm the bigger picture of the church, of the temple in this instance, he says, in fact, God God will destroy that person. So he says, it's not just all about you, the plan, the future, the dreams God has for you. It's not just all about you, it's about you, and it's about us. And this is the context of that passage. Now with this context in mind, let me now get to the, hopefully, what will become practical, okay? I wanna talk about three C's to 2024 side. Is everybody okay? Did you survive that scriptural exposition all right? I hope you go home and read it. It's beautiful when you read it all of a piece and you understand what it is Paul's trying to say. So three C's to 2024 side. If you're listening and not watching, C's is spelled S-E-E-S. Yes, I know it isn't a word, I don't think. But I make up words sometimes. And this is one of those occasions. Three C's, 2024 side. First of all, see that you can see. God has made it possible for us to spiritually see things about himself and our futures and to know things about himself and our futures and to pray, think, and act accordingly. This is where we have to start. We have to see that we can see. You need to believe that God will talk to you about what your life is supposed to be about so that you won't walk in circles. Here's this great passage. Paul's writing about something else in, in, when he writes to the Romans here, but we, we can extrapolate from it a principle that has to do with what I'm discussing today. It's where Paul says to the Romans, Romans 1.19, what may be known about God is plain to them. Listen, what may be known, there are things we can know about God. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now he's talking about people who, who should have seen what God wanted to make known about himself and who did see to some extent, but even though they knew things about God, they weren't paying attention. But let, let's put it on a positive side. One here should then think that Paul is saying that it's possible to clearly see at least some of God's invisible qualities 
and therefore to know God and then think not futilely but productively and to think not with darkened hearts but with enlightened hearts. There are things that God wants to make plain to us, that he wants us to clearly see. And I think sometimes we don't even, to us it's all just, we just can't ever know. But the fact is God wants us to know certain things about himself and he wants us to know certain things about our future. And there are some ways that God makes himself clearly seen in this text, it's through the created world. God says you should be able to see me in the created world and therefore uh, uh, seeing was analogous to knowing in first century Greek thought. You should be able to see things about me in the created world, therefore you should know things about me in the created world. But there are other ways that God wants to make himself plain to us through his word, through teaching, in the depths of our spirit. I think there are ways that are true for all of us. We can all learn about some of, we can see some of God's invisible qualities as we read scripture, for instance. But then I think there are other ways that God finds, according to the uniqueness of who we are, to make himself plain to us. By the way, Craig Keener, the great a uh, biblical scholar said that Paul, in this passage, Paul argues that God's revelation, including his invisible characteristics, is seen playing on the widespread ancient use of vision or seeing as an analogy for knowing. Many thinkers emphasize the vision of the mind, often of the divine, and emphasize that given the transcendence of God, divine inspiration in the soul is the best way to envision him. Why am I saying that? I'm saying that you need to see that you can see. You need to start with a premise that God wants to share his mind with you at least in some way that helps us to see his invisible qualities. What no eye can see, we can see through the Holy Spirit in us that God wants to make things about himself, and I believe if we go to 1 Corinthians, our future's plain to us. Guys, one of the most important things that ever happened in my life, and in the life of this church, so even though those of you who are part of this church, you don't maybe, you wouldn't think about this, but it could be said if you've been around here for a while, maybe one of the most important things in your life, is that when I was a teenager, I, saw a glimpse of my future and knew that God had called me to lead a church in a suburb of New York City. Now I had somebody ask me about that the other day. They wanted me to explain it to them. I don't know how to explain it. Honestly, I don't know fully how to explain it. Some of this is a mysterious thing that happens in, in, the, in, the, in the soul of a person and in their relationship with God. But somehow or another, when I was in my late teenage years, when people would ask me what I felt God had called to do with my life, I would say, I believe that God's called me to build a great church in a suburb of New York City. And at that time, I had never even been to New York City. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I knew any more details than that. I didn't know, was it New Jersey? I probably didn't even know New Jersey was next to New York City, honestly. 
that New Jersey or Connecticut or I didn't, I don't think God necessarily gives us the details. Sometimes he gives us a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. He gives us a, see, not, not the whole sentence, not the whole paragraph, not the whole book. And part of why he does that is that's part of the adventure with God is that he wants us to engage our will and participate now in, un, in unrolling our destinies. He wants, we're not robots, we're not automatons. He doesn't necessarily give us a playbook. He gives us a, a sense of what we need to do, uh, what winning looks like. And so I knew that. Now it was, you know, it wasn't for a decade until that I actually showed up here. But, but as, as a consequence of that, I haven't spent my life walking in circles. I've had a sense of where I was supposed to go. And then, you know, in, the, in my relationship with God and relationship with other people and responding and, and, and proactively dealing with life have worked through what that looks like day by day over the years. I pray for everybody under my influence that you can see. Say, how do I know this? I, I, you can know. You can see, and when you see, you can know certain things that exist in the invisible realm about God and God's plans for you. Here's the second C. See that your vision is inextricably connected to our vision. Now, our is a very general term. I can speak about that literally here, but I just want you to see that your vision is connected to something more than just, it's never just, guys, guys, it is never, what God is doing in your life is never just about you. It's about us. Now, I don't necessarily mean TLCC. I'm saying it's about the bigger picture of what God's doing in the world, the bigger picture of what God's doing through the church, the bigger picture of what God's doing through churches. It's never just about us. When Paul made this beautiful promise that we could see things that can't be seen and all of that. He was doing it in a discussion about the relationships that people in a local church had with each other. And you read the whole letter to the first Corinthians, that's what it's about. So, so, you know, so you see him then saying, 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you that you all agree with one another in what you say and there be no divisions among you. You know what, I've already read through that. I think you got the point. So, so I don't have a lot of time to get into this today, though I hope to get into it in future weeks. But God, there's, your life has so much more possibility when your vision is not primarily just about you. And, 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 I, and now, now that's obvious as it concerns our marriages and it concerns our children, our families, our friendships and all of that. But, but I'm talking specifically now about the church. That's, that's what I wanna focus on because that's what Paul's writing about here. He's not writing about family relationships though they are primary and, and, and more important than any other relationship in our life. But he's, he's writing here about our relationship to one another in the church. You might notice that our mission statement here at TLCC is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread his love in ever-widening circles. What we're trying to say is somehow or another, and I will promise you that this is true, God's dreams for your life, if properly understood, will be connected to God's dreams for his world. 
and you're going to be involved in not just an I thing, you and God, but you're going to be involved in a you and God thing and a we and God thing. And this is part of God's plan for us. And the way that this plan most typically gets worked out is through a local church. Paul is writing here, not to the church writ large, he's writing to a specific church in a specific location. Now, when we talk about the body of Christ, the body of Christ is infinitely bigger than TLCC or any local church. But, but Paul talked about the body of Christ in terms of a universal reality, and he talked about the body of Christ in terms of a local reality, people who knew each other, who were joined together, who were supposed to have one vision, who instead were quarreling and acting like a bunch of babies. And it was messing up God's plans for those individuals because Paul couldn't even talk to them about that because they had their relationships with each other messed up. Okay, and, and so, so let, let me just say this and then I'll move on to my last point and start wrapping this thing up. I don't normally speak this directively, but to those of you who are following Jesus, let me say something plainly. At some point, you need to make a commitment to a local church. And a local church needs to make a commitment to you so that your dreams can be pursued in the context of what God's doing in the world and most of what God's doing in the world is happening through the church and local churches in particular. At some point, you can't just be an attender, a show up every once in a while. Now again, if you're regularly attending TLCC, you're probably supposed to at some point step up and say, this is my church, I wanna make this official, I wanna be a member here, okay? Now, if you're not regularly attending TLCC and you're regularly attending someplace else or you came here today for the first time and you don't really like what we're doing, you probably need, in fact, please, <laughs> I, now I'm being a smart alley. Let, let me forget that, I was gonna be sarcastic and it's not something to be sarcastic about, let me be serious. You need to find a church where you can agree around the vision of that church and you need to make a commitment to it. Because your individual relationship with God was meant to be joined with other people in very clear ways. And when you get into the rest of 1 Corinthians, as we will, Paul talks about what it means to be a member of the body. And he essentially says, the body can't be, the church can't be what it was meant to be without you, and you can't be what you were meant to be without it. Now, now, there's a really exciting part of this, and that is we've been doing a lot of talking around here on our, on our executive staff team about what, what do we, we there, there, there are some church, every church has different ways in which they talk about what it means for somebody to make a commitment. And it's church polity is unique to each church or denomination, and there's not necessarily a right or a wrong way. Here at TLCC, we've decided to double down on the idea of membership. Membership is a biblical term. The etymology of membership, you know, we talk about go, go to Costco and become a member. Costco didn't invent membership. Membership literally is, it, 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 that word, that concept, that idea starts in scripture. And we're gonna double down on that. And we have some really exciting things we're gonna be rolling out in coming weeks because we wanna make sure we're giving everybody at, at who, who, who wants to be a part of TLCC an opportunity to understand what it means to be a member of the 
of the body where you're making a commitment so that your life can be everything God meant for it to be and so that the church can be everything it was meant to be. Christian will talk a little bit more about that later. Finally, and I'm going to try to close here. The third C is see that the secret to seeing is not focusing on seeing, but focusing on the seer. I know the grammarians are saying there's not a word seer. But I think you get my point. The science about insight informs us that insight rarely comes when we are intensely focused on gaining insight. Insight rarely comes. Now, now I may sound like I'm confused because I'm talking about insight, but, but now I want to talk, I want to help you think this week about how to actually receive insight. And it's not by walking out saying, I've got to have insight, I've got to have insight, I've got to have insight. Now you need to say that. But what you need to do is you need to focus on the one who can give you insight. And so uh, T. Irene Sanders wrote in her book, Strategic Thinking in the New Science, central to the concept of insight is its relationship to the unconscious or pre-intellectual mind. And insight forms while the conscious mind is focused elsewhere and makes itself known in a flash of conscious recognition. So this is why insight always seems to come to us as a surprise. It catches us off guard. There actually are studies that have been done about why so many people get great ideas and get flashes of insight while they're taking their shower. It's, it's, it's because that it's the most relaxed part of the day for many of us. And especially if it's in the early morning, which is another time insight comes because our minds are disorganized. We've not structured our thoughts. And it has to do, I don't understand this, I'm just telling you what I've read. It has to do with the way alpha rays travel through the brain when we're in a relaxed state. Okay, good luck with that. But that's what the science says. And, 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 and alpha rays don't travel well through what one writer called, a scholarly writer, called a clenched mind. Okay? This is what I want to leave you with. I've got to figure out. I've got to get inside. I'm going to get it right. I'm going to have a two-day meeting with myself. I'm going to... Okay. More than likely, when you're in that state of... Mm, then things don't, insight doesn't come. It's when, you're, it's when you're in a relaxed state of mind and, and so on that, that insight comes. Now, look, look with, 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 with that kind of crazy thinking in mind, this doesn't mean that insight comes to, to, to empty minds. There's so much to say about this. There are disciplines that we need to pursue. We need to focus on insight, okay? We need to do that. But, 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 but the fact is that seldom does the breakthrough idea come in that state, but, there, the, 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 but insight has something to work with because we've disciplined ourselves. But it's when we relax, unclench our mind. Now, here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. As it is written, I think I've read this four times now, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us 
by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And then I haven't read this part. For who knows a person's thought, ex thoughts except their own spirit within them? In other words, we who are embodied spirits read our minds with our spirit and tell ourselves what we're thinking. But no one else can know what we're thinking except a person who's living in that body and whose spirit is connected to their mind, which is another difficult subject. But he's saying the only person who can know their own thoughts is that, that their own person, at least in full, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The point is that it's not when we're focused on gaining insight, but when we're focused on the person who gives us insight, that insight ultimately comes. When we join our mind with God's mind, which we're told we have the mind of Christ, we're not in a clenched state, we're in a relaxed state because we're expecting God to tell us things we can't know ourselves. It's going to be God who freely decides what to tell us that we need to know about himself and about ourselves. And so this is why, for me, my greatest ideas have not come when I've been thinking about the idea. It's come when I've been praying, when I've been worshiping, when I'm reading scripture when I'm in fellowship with other believers. It's when I'm cultivating my relationship with God that the Spirit of God then begins to work in me and tell me things that only, the only God can tell me what he's thinking. I can't get it any way except through my relationship with him. So, so people, thank you. Christian, you know the hipster looking guy with the hat on. What's the deal with that today? My son, my youngest son, people say it's freaky. How that, that he will represent me in a situation at 27 years old now. And how he knows what my thoughts would be. They will say it's like you were standing there talking. Now he's his own person. He has his own mind, trust me. And he doesn't agree with everything that I think, believe me, but he knows what I think. How does he know so well what I think? It's because we have a very unique father-son relationship, and he's spent the bulk of his life listening to me teach and preach and sit around the kitchen table at dinner, you know, for hundreds of hours and talk and debate and discuss and argue. He knows what I think because he knows me. Do you understand? And the way that you will know what God's thinking is when you focus on knowing God. See? And then all of a sudden, boom, I have a sense of where I'm supposed to be going in my life. Oh, what happened? Somehow, I just, I just know. Again, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't follow the disciplines of developing foresight. But I'm just going to tell you, if you want to know what God thinks about you that's so great that your eyes can't see it, but you can see it 
You have to know the person who sees everything. And you can.